We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you love the Intelligence Squared podcast, you can support the show and help us do what we do by hitting subscribe via Apple Podcasts. And in return, you'll get bonus content, ad-free listening, and early episodes too. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Coming up, we welcome back Fiona Hill, the foreign affairs and national security expert discusses Putin, foreign policy, and what could lie ahead for the war in Ukraine. Fiona Hill has been an advisor to three U.S. presidents, George W. Bush, Barack Obama and Donald Trump, the latter of whom she testified against in the first impeachment hearing. And she's a leading expert on the Russian president too. She came to Intelligence Squared earlier this year to discuss her book, There Is Nothing For You Here. It's a memoir, but also a piece of political analysis outlining Fiona's youth growing up amid economic decline in the north of England and how policies today from London, Moscow and Washington can lead to fertile ground for populists. Hill is also the author of Mr. Putin, Operative in the Kremlin, and former senior director of Europe and Russia at the United States Security Council. She's an essential voice in any discussion on Russia and Ukraine, so we invited her back recently to discuss the latest with Edward Lucas, the writer, author, and European and transatlantic security specialist. Here's Edward and Fiona in conversation. Hello, and welcome to this discussion, wherever you are in the world, particularly if you're inside Russia. Uh, I'm so pleased to have my old friend Fiona Hill here. We've known each other for more years than I like to remember. And I want to kick off, really, Fiona, with a very interesting piece you wrote for Foreign Policy a few days ago, which is about whether, it was an interview, in fact, about whether Putin's winning or not. And we may think in the West that this has been a terrible setback for him. Russia is isolated as never before. Even the complacent Germans are waking up to the dangers of their irresponsible quasi-pacifist approach to security policy. We're seeing huge moves towards diversification. Ukraine is no longer a backwater. It's an absolute front water. And the war has not been won. So one could easily fall into a 
perhaps a trap of thinking that this is going, um, if not well for the West, certainly very badly for Putin. And he must be looking to see if he's got any options that would get him out of the pickle he's put himself into. But that would be perhaps a rather complacent and superficial reading of events. If we think ourselves inside Putin's head, it looks very different. So tell us, what does Putin thinks he's not running out of time, or maybe he is. There's one aspect in which he is up against the time clock, and I'll put that out there right now, and then you know we can we can think about it, and you know obviously uh, discuss it uh, from uh, different vantage points here, because in 2024, everybody's fixated on the fact that the United States will have an election in 2024 and worrying about, you know, what might happen. Might this be the return of Donald Trump? All the kinds of, you know, various things are playing out over here. And that's in November, of course. But in March of 2024, both uh, Vladimir uh, Zelensky and Vladimir Putin have to put themselves up, in theory, to re-election. Now, for Volodymyr Zelensky as a wartime president in the midst of everything that's happened, you know, one would sort of suspect that the Ukrainian people would not want to change that horse in midstream. I mean, he's definitely gone into the Winston Churchill, you know, territory for a wartime. And, you know, we're not in uh, any uh, stretch of the imagination at the end of uh, this conflict at this stage and not likely to be, you know, in uh, March of 2024 either. But Putin actually does have to re-legitimate himself in March of 2024. I mean, as people might recall, he extended his terms in office back in 2020. Uh, he was supposed to have come to, again, the end of his term limits in 2024 of two uh, consecutive terms. And there was all these machinations going on behind the scenes, you know, long before we thought that he would be in a full-on invasion um, in Ukraine, trying to kind of figure out some kind of formula that would keep him there uh, but and in influence, but not necessarily in power, and that he could devolve some authority, maybe have some kind of successor, as Yeltsin had done for him, etc., but obviously, Putin was uncomfortable, you know, with the idea of moving on and finding a successor. And so there was an extension of the terms beyond 2024. And a lot of people actually have been bristling at this behind the scenes, thinking, well, it might be my turn to be president. And one of the um, things uh, that might have factored in to this decision to invade Ukraine in February of 2020, uh, 2022 was thinking ahead to 2024. Another quick, victorious war. Putin getting the kind of acclaim uh, from the population that he got as a result of the annexation of Crimea uh, back in 2014 and really sort of cementing his position either as the king, the czar or the kingmaker and being able to you know, smoothly breeze through 2024 with all of the different uh, elements in place. Well, that really hasn't happened, has it? And so the kind of question then does become what happens in 2024. And so I think we should just uh, think about that. But otherwise, when Putin surveys the scene, as you have suggested, he doesn't necessarily think that he's losing. It may look like a pyrrhic victory for all of us if you know his definition of winning is reducing all of Ukraine to rubble and then presiding over it. But as we've seen what Putin did in Grozny, um, in Chechnya in the 1990s, in the late 1990s and early 2000s, when he came uh, into the presidency. He was a wartime president when he came in in 99 with the second war in Chechnya that was already raging. And of course, we've seen him aid and abet Bashar al-Assad in Syria in raising Aleppo and many other historic Syrian cities to the ground to uh, basically keep, <clears throat> excuse me, Assad in power. So from Putin's perspective, as long as he can grind everything down 
then he can prevail. And he also, of course, thinks that the uh, West will simply fall apart. And of course, every debate right now going on in the Western press is about can we make it to winter? Everyone's been citing uh, the um, recent presentation at the um, Aspen Security Forum of Richard Moore, the head of MI6, uh, quoting basically Game of Thrones and winter is coming and the worries about um, energy crisis. And um, uh, obviously, we've got the grain embargo and some efforts at least to try to break out of that. But from Putin's perspective, he still thinks, I think, that the leverage is all um, on his side and also that time may still be on his side, notwithstanding this 2024 deadline. It's really interesting to be reminded that Russia isn't a political monolith. I don't think anyone listening to this podcast and probably almost no one in the world would know when the next North Korean election is. Um, and Russia isn't quite like Russia, although we often say it's a dictatorship or an autocracy. It's not quite like that. There's still a, a kind of political system. And there could be protests if the uh, if the uh, election rigging, um, either before, during or after the election, is particularly egregious. Let's just, before we move on to the international side, where, as you say, Putin thinks things are going right for him. Let's just look a bit more about what's happening in Russia. Sanctions have bitten quite hard. Um, the footprint of the war is probably um, partly on the middle classes, some of whom are emigrating, but also on poorer people in regions outside Russia, places like Boratia, which perhaps some of us may struggle to um, find on the map, but it's uh, um, in the on, on the Mongolian, um, Mongolian border. Um, what do you think if we can draw a balance sheet, is the balance sheet of losses, pluses and minuses for Putin inside Russia so far from the war? Well, I think that that's where, you know, I think there would be questions about whether time is completely on his side. Because one of the reasons, you know, for example, that there hasn't been the full-on mobilisation uh, that many people are actually anticipating. If we think back to May, you may remember, and people listening may remember, that the newspaper columns were full of, will Putin actually declare war on May 9th, that being the anniversary of victory in World War II, and basically call for a full-on mobilisation. There was a lot of anticipation that he would, and then a bit of surprise when he had a, a rather measured and you know cautious um, speech on uh, the, the, the victory day and during the parades on May 9th. And partly it's, as you have just suggested there, Ed, most of uh, the conscripts and the people who are being sent off to the front in Ukraine are from marginal areas of Russia. They're not from the urban centres of Moscow and St. Petersburg, you know, basically the urban middle classes and certainly not the children of the elite, because then there might well be a backlash in 2024 if the war isn't wrapped up by then, might become, you know, really quite complex. But we are also starting to see some dissent. There's been some videos online of um, a group of uh, young soldiers, about 20 or so, refusing uh, to stay in Ukraine and be sent back to the front. We've seen some small-scale protests of Buryat women, you know, worrying about their husbands and brothers and sons who've been sent there. We've also getting a lot of reports that the Wagner Group, uh, for example, or the paramilitary organisations and networks that the Russians have also been using to send off to the front, have actually been recruiting in prisons and, you know, trying to, um, you know, basically get more people uh, to go out to the front, suggesting that there is a manpower shortage and that Putin has been quite hesitant about having full-on mobilised and trying to do stealth mobilisation because he might be worried about popular support. Because we see in a lot of the polling from the Lavada group and Siom and all these um, other, um, you know, pretty reputable in the past um, uh, polling uh, groups inside of Russia, 
that it looks like on the surface that support for the war is somewhat robust. But when you start to pass all of this, it's clear that older people are more supportive, older people are watching television and getting their news from television. But the very cohort that is usually has to go to the front of younger people, 18 and over, are pretty much opposed to it when you start to pass the numbers. And as you already suggested, there are hundreds of thousands of Russians who have left who don't want to be part of the war. And there will be you know, some considerable resistance um, if uh, this continues for a long period of time. Right. You know, from people simply, you know, voting with their feet to move away and to resist uh, being dragged into the war. And if the f- casualty figures for Russia was as high as people are suggesting, you know, I've heard everything from 15,000 deaths and then larger numbers of casualties, because often in Russia, those casualty figures are hard to pass because it's not just people who've died in combat, but people who've been severely injured and, you know, clearly can't return to the front. And some of those figures that we've, you know, heard from Ukrainians and others, again, we have to have some scepticism about this, but they're in the tens of thousands mm-hmm. in excess of people who've actually died. This is far in excess of deaths in Chechnya, uh, during you know the the last civil conflict inside of Russia and far in excess of deaths during Afghanistan and that also is significant because you know we keep talking about the Russia's great ability to withstand a grinding war and to you know basically throw troops and cannon fodder and it's very true that the political system you know doesn't factor in casualties in the way that we do and the Kremlin has a high tolerance for loss. We have to remember that all of these previous other major military um, operations were when it was the Soviet Union, when it was a a population, you know, twice uh, as as large as it is now. This is the first war of Russia as a Russian federation with 140 million against a neighbour. World War II was the whole Soviet Union. Ukrainians and Estonians and and others died during that. And similarly with Afghanistan, when there were a lot of soldiers sent from Central Asia. So I think we have to factor in here that it's not that simple, you know, from uh, the perspective of the military operation. Well, I, I, I want to look at the diaspora in a moment because this is a huge new um, element in the equation. But I, I just want to look at, uh, concentrate for a, a little bit longer on this, what we might call the, the scraping of the barrel that's going on, the clear difficulties that um, Russia is uh, experiencing and sustaining both from a manpower and from a supplies point of view, the offensive. Because in Russian military doctrine, <clears throat> if one looked at a offensive that was in this sort of difficulty, the absolutely clear um, conclusion would be that one needs to pause. One would take many weeks, possibly quite a few months to rebuild supply lines, rebuild stocks, reform units, um, deal with all the um, wear and tear that's happened. I'm wondering whether any Russian general is going to have the nerve to say to Putin, um, we're on the point of running out of puff boss, we need to stop. Because if they don't, then the whole Russian front becomes quite brittle and the chances of a Ukrainian counterattack um, being successful um, greatly increase. Yeah, well, I mean, that's really um, the big issue, isn't it, right now? I mean, one wonders if Sergei Shoigu, who um, is the defence minister and used to be, of course, the minister of emergencies and is actually a civil engineer, not a military guy, is allowing you know the percolating up of information from the uniformed military. Because we're certainly getting a lot of reports from various um, uh, places. Royal United Services Institute in the UK, for example, has done a whole series, uh, War on the Rock. Institute of, you know, war um, uh, uh, studies, you know, for example, there's a whole host of people who have been looking into this in, in real depth. And you're sort of suggesting that there is a lot of pushback. I mean, Russia's lost a lot of generals. They happen to have a lot of generals. You know, <laughs> they're always the most, the, you know, the kind of 
they have more generals where we tend to have more sergeants and sergeant majors, you know, for example, in our militaries. But, you know, they're, they're having some pretty significant losses here. So I actually think there is a risk here that some of this information actually does filter up. And then Putin tries to declare a kind of a victory of sorts in the interim, and that we then kind of fall into this sort of idea that we can create some kind of negotiated solution. I think this is why it's so important right now looking at the battle for Kherson, uh, what's happening in terms of the Ukrainian counteroffensive to push back some of the Russian lines. Because I, I'm pretty sure that if Putin had already got full control of all of Donetsk and Luhansk, having recognised all of this in its administrative borders, and the Kherson Oblast, and the, kind of, you know, the whole region around the city of Kherson, few hundred thousand people, you know, live in the entire region. And then adding to um, their control over places like Mariupol and elsewhere, that they might actually cause for a pause. But it, for them, it would be an operational pause and then try to kind of push everybody into a negotiation so they can consolidate what they've got and then use that for a platform, you know, for a relaunch of hostilities at a moment when they've managed to literally regroup and resupply. And I think that that's one of the perpetual risks that we have in this. The more that people you know, feel like that they want to see an end to this, I mean, we see this in opinion polling in the West and elsewhere, everybody like this over with, given you know all of the risks uh, to ourselves that we're, that we're seeing here as well. But there is a huge risk of us simply handing to Russia the um, opportunity for uh, an operational pause that will just strengthen Putin's hand for more push against Ukraine, because... He has said himself, just as this is not me analysing or you analysing it, Ed, Putin has said himself that the operational goals have not changed. And Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, has just within you know the last week made it very clear that he said the geography has changed. That you know previous negotiations based on you know kind of settlement along the lines of you know Russia you know withdrawing to uh, pre February twenty fourth um, positions are, are not on the cards, and that Kherson and other places are now within uh, Russia's sights for immediate to short term goals, and there's no indication that they've let up on the desire to topple Zelensky or take Kiev in some fashion either. And it's it's well worth remembering just how maximalist those goals are. It's not just the um, basically the, the neutralization or the neutering of, of, of Ukraine, but also profound changes in the whole European security order, um, basically the end of NATO, uh, the end of the American nuclear guarantee to Europe and the, um, the nuclear presence in Europe and the demilitarization of the um, countries that used to be in the um, old Warsaw Pact. And I think you're absolutely right to highlight the danger that um, there are voices in the West who say, I think it was Ulrike Guerrault um, in from Germany, said, um, the worst peace is better than the best war, um, which seemed to me a remark of stunning naivety. Well, um, the worst peace is then a recipe for more war, unfortunately. And I, you know, that's obviously why the Swedes and the Finns um, have uh, moved toward NATO, and you know, why we're getting so much of a change of perspective from so many of the European countries because they have they've fathomed that, they've factored that into you know their calculations. Yes, um, let's t turn then to the question of international unity, um, because the um, one of the points you make in your foreign policy article is that the uh, wider world. And there's been a sort of outbreak of Western unity, but the wider world is a um, 
far from being convinced of the Ukrainian case. And we've seen people like the Indonesian leader um, and others coming to Ukraine and saying very anodyne things about how war's bad and if only it were over. Um, and then um, and then votes at the United Nations where um, big democracies, you know, South Africa, Brazil, Indonesia, which I mentioned, others, which one might think would be strongly supporting a, another democracy that's suffering from a sort of basically a colonial land grab, haven't done that. So, how do you take the how do you take the temperature on the international stage, and what 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 should we what how should we be thinking about that? Yeah, I think we have to think about this very seriously and trying to figure out you know how we can uh, really craft a much broader um, international uh, response here. Um, you know, as you've outlined, um, Ed, the, there is a lot of difference of opinion in other parts of the world um, that's maybe perhaps not so uh, clearly expressed publicly. But behind the scenes, um, people are very frank about the way that they're looking at things. So it's not that many of these countries, Indonesia, Kenya, you know, other places, actually the Kenyans and Ghanaians have been you know, quite outspoken uh, within the United Nations Um uh, General Assembly uh, frame, for example, is not that they don't understand what's happening here, and they can uh, can't see that uh, Russia is trying to retake uh, previous um, uh, territory, and that this is a, in many respects, a colonial war of um, of imperial expansion. It's just that they don't like the way that things are sorting out in the world. I mean, after February fourth, when Putin and Xi made that, you know, quite remarkable. Um, another remarkable in the sense that we really needed to take notice of this uh, statement about a partnership without limits, uh, where President Xi made it very clear uh, that China has a great deal of antipathy towards NATO and doesn't want to see sort of a NATO expansion in terms of that kind of mechanism of NATO rather than NATO per se, but of you know mutual security uh, defence structures that we have in Europe extended into the Asia Pacific, and in fact to see some member countries like France and the United Kingdom, you know, along with close partners, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, South Korea, all acting in a similar way in its neighbourhood. Um, and of course, NATO has already been also trying to draw up a China uh, policy. You know, we can now see that Russia and China and their strategic perspectives have become quite closely fused together. And for a lot of the rest of the world, they don't want to have to make a choice here. You know, you think about India and they feel extraordinarily vulnerable vis-a-vis -vis China. They have looked to Russia not just as a source of armaments, but, you know, at one point, you know, hoping that Russia would help to give them some room for manoeuvre and future clashes with China, clashes, that is, with China, which there, there, there were back in 2020 and several casualties up in the Himalayas on disputed border. Now they're worried that, you know, Russia and China are part of a new bloc that's going to be in opposition and in open hostility with, you know, the West, the collective West, which also includes Japan and South Korea and, uh, you know, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, not just um, all of NATO, but a kind of an expansion, uh, expanded uh, arrangement here, and that they're going to be actually forced to choose sides when they actually don't. I mean, they want to have room for manoeuvre. I've had a number of talks to uh, senior representatives from you know some of uh, the other countries uh, within the General Assembly who you know, voted in favour of the Ukraine resolutions, but haven't actually openly jumped into sanctions, although they're not actually actively helping the Russians either. And they try to explain that, look, they don't buy this whole idea of democracies versus autocracies. 
They're, you know, think that the Western systems, our political systems are in uh, difficulty as well. They're kind of systems neutral. They don't believe that we stand up for our own values. And so the way that we often frame this, they find not very convincing. They don't necessarily, you know, believe this is all about NATO, although some in South Africa and other places uh, tend to. Uh, they don't necessarily always see it as a proxy war, but they simply don't want to find themselves stuck between a clash of two titanic blocks and forced to kind of make a side either to be with Russia and China on the one hand or to be with the collective West on the other. There are also are a number of countries who tend to see Russia as still the heir to the Soviet Union in terms of the leader of the non-aligned bloc and the leader of the Marxist liberationist post-colonial movements um, of the Cold War period. You know, and you can think of the Angolas and Mozambiques and others who fall into that uh, category. And of course, there's been an awful lot of Russian disinformation. I've got some colleagues at Brookings who looked at hashtags um, in Africa uh, through one of our you know projects more related to AI and uh, social media. And they found that all of the dominant hashtags um, in Africa on the war were driven by Russian entities. Russian disinformation. And they can actually show, you know, kind of a correlation um, in terms of kind of public opinion as linked to, you know, the uh, the magnitude of, of, of the kind of uh, the readership or the sort of viewership. I never know, quite know how to call that these days of, uh, of these uh, various hashtags. I mean, there are um, companies like Microsoft that have also amassed a considerable amount of data, you know, that can really kind of also track uh, they've actually put out a report. I've got it around somewhere. But anyway, I'd, I'd recommend people taking a look at it, uh, uh, looking at disinformation surrounding the, the war in Ukraine and the, the amount of information that's being put out by Russian sources. And in some cases, mm -hmm. they can see a direct correlation in terms of opinion with it as well. So this is something we can actually analyze as well. It's not just something, um, you know, in terms of uh, real hard data, not just something we can surmise from all of this. But we then have a major problem. And how we tackle it in a holistic way, we obviously need a much better approach to public diplomacy. But we've also got to then work with the Ukrainians and others to think about what is our overall message about what this is all about and how yeah. do we actually craft that message and have the right messengers? I mean, clearly, we've worked on uh, the grain embargo and trying to get the message out you know, through the United Nations. The Turks have been involved in this. But we're going to have yes. to start thinking you know, more broadly about how we manage this international uh, diplomatic yes. arena. So I, I think that's exactly the the divide that we have. You know, the the Ukrainians have had quite a lot of success in getting their message across in in Europe and in North America, where they have their you know, their diaspora and their historical connections, and saying this is you know, we're a former captive nation. This is the neo-Soviet imperialist policy. Um, it fit, you know, Putin's out to get us, and he's going to get you soon. And that all kind of resonates quite well. Once, if it's portrayed as an East-West conflict outside that sort of area of the Old West, people think very differently. And I've I've heard people say this is basically like Afghanistan. This is the Western proxy getting a kicking. So you know, why should we sympathise with the Western proxy? And I feel that what the Ukrainians need to do, and perhaps we need to help them a bit, is to get across the idea this is basically one of the world's last empires, China perhaps being another one, um, trying to restore cultural, ecclesiological, linguistic, economic, and most of all, geopolitical hegemony over a former captive. And that's a message that ought to resonate a, 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 a more, but it's difficult for the Ukrainians. They don't really have embassies. They don't have connections to these parts parts of the world. So, um, but um, 
I, I wanted to just move, move on to the question of the, the, the Russian diaspora, because this is a huge new element. We have many hundreds of thousands of Russians living abroad who are both experiencing, they're living in the Western information space with one foot, but in the Russia or with one eye and in the, but often getting information from home and the other. Do you feel that there's a strategic opportunity there for us to put pressure on the Putin regime through working with the diaspora? Um, is this is this a, a political factor? And um, is it something that we should be encouraging because emigration weakens the regime economically? Or should we say emigration is actually a safety valve and the people who should be um, campaigning against Putin back home, uh, living in Tbilisi or Yerevan or London or where, wherever. And that means they're not politically active. Um, I've heard some people say we should ban all visas for all Russians, just you know, to keep turn, turn Russia into a pressure cooker, because that will destabilize and also um, you know, ex, ex, express our displeasure. What, what, what's your take on that? Well, look, I think, uh, well, I mean, obviously, on that last point there, um, you know, I have some questions about whether that would actually work. Because if you think about it, the repressive capacity of the state in Russia is pretty extreme. You know, we've seen what happened to Alexei Navalny, you know, for example, Vladimir Karamoza, and, you know, many other people that we could list here. I mean, those are, you know, people that we both know well. I mean, Hannah mentioned that you have Mikhail Khodorkovsky uh, coming to participate. And think about what Khodorkovsky himself had to go through 10, 11 years in a penal colony, then pushed into exile, um, his family hounded. Um, you know, Russia has honed over, you know, many decades and in fact centuries, uh, the art of repression. And, you know, they know how to decapitate opposition movements, you know, sometimes literally. So the, um, the barrier for protest has been set extremely high. And in part, this exodus of Russians is a protest. I mean, hundreds of the thousands of people, I can't say that I've spoken to hundreds of thousands of people, but I've certainly spoken to enough people who have come out uh, from Russia to know that they want to be part of Russia's future, not part of Vladimir Putin's past and this vicious present. And so making a strategic alliance with some of the people who are out in exile who can be, you know, kind of a, a different kind of force for change inside of uh, Russia um, in the future, I think is also very important as well. I think we have a, a, we run a huge risk if we ostracize Russians who are clearly not supportive of this regime and, you know, basically um, judge them um, in, in, in the same way that we're judging those who are actually enabling the war and help to plan the war with Putin. Now, you know, often I and others talk about Putin's war, and this is very deliberate because actually Putin did make this decision pretty much uh, single-handedly to go to war. There were a you know, handful of people around him who were part of the decision-making, but you can actually see, you know, very clearly that an awful lot of people were not in the mix and were uninformed, uh, notably the uh, prime minister and the head of the Russian Central Bank, who left obviously a lot of uh, resources you know, outside in the wilder world where they would be seized. Uh, Sergei Narishkin, the head of the uh, external uh, security services, looked as mystified and shocked as everybody else in some of uh, the, Preslin, uh, the, the Kremlin press conferences just before the invasion, for example. So, I mean, we, we can know then from the outside that there are some people inside that one might to try to exert pressure on. 
and um, actually try to find communications with uh, to kind of gauge, you know, how much uh, that they're upset with this. I mean, we have this big debate about the seizure of oligarch assets and business people's assets. Not every business person in Russia is linked to the Kremlin. And actually, the seizure of their assets often might, in fact, push them even further towards support of the Kremlin, because then they feel that they've got no other options. So I think we have to have a very serious debate about this, not just about the short and to medium term and how to put pressure on uh, the Kremlin, and there, but over the longer term, about how to re-engage with Russia, just as we had to have those debates about the Eastern Bloc uh, during the Cold War. I actually believe that, again, trying to focus on this international diplomacy at what we were talking about before, when the Russians suddenly find that you know, the Indonesians and Malaysians and the Chinese and others are actually saying to them, look, you know, you need to put an end to this. This is actually hurting all of our interests. It has it hurts our bilateral relationships. That they're going to pay um, uh, more attention. Now that's going to be extraordinarily difficult. I mean, it, clearly we have to keep um, a close eye on uh, the Kremlin enablers. You know, there there is of course some pretty solid support for this war, this special military operation. There are many uh, members of the Russian armed forces who have committed atrocities now. But again, not everybody has done this, and so I do think that we have to bear in mind that over the longer term, and that's you know sometimes still off in the foreseeable future, we will have to re-engage. Now, a lot of people, I mean, we've heard Macron talk about don't humiliate Russia. I think that that's a, you know, because it might turn out to be like Weimar Germany. We're already beyond that. I mean, Russia has gone through its Weimar period and we're already in the, you know, full-on, you know, invasion of Poland plus. And if we're thinking about a World War II analogy, I mean, Russia and Putin have only humiliated themselves. But there is a point of over the longer term that, you know, we can't ignore that Russia is there. And short of a complete and utter loss of war and an occupation of Russia, which of course didn't happen during the Cold War, the end of the Cold War, and you know, is unlikely to have happened in, in this case too, it's going to be very hard to get Russians to come to terms with what they've done. And we'll only be able to do that by engaging, you know, with people who genuinely see things differently. Uh, you know, I think the German and the Japanese um, experience of you know, kind of coming to terms with uh, imperial excess and wartime atrocities, of course, happened under circumstances of occupation. And, you know, we can engage with the Germans and Japanese and others to kind of think about that, because at some point, the Russians are going to have to come to terms with, as they tried to during the Gorbachev period, an early Yeltsin period, you know, with what has happened in here, because otherwise you're going to have generations of enmity, you know, to, to overcome, not just with Ukrainians, but with most of Europe as well, which is not going to be sustainable for Russia over the longer term. This isn't a great, you know, kind of answer here, but I think we have to think about this, as you've already laid out in different terms. There's not a, one single approach. I think we have short, medium and long term issues that we have to factor in here. Would you like to support Intelligence Squared in what we do? Well, just hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts and you can listen to Intelligence Squared ad-free, enjoy exclusive bonus content and get weekly episodes in advance too. Hit subscribe and we'll see you on the other side. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation 
of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool and I love the dance piece Sutra inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents with the code squared. Simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must-not-take-yourself-too-seriously and 6-1 since that matters and... What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Yes, and I, I think that this business of, of trying to move towards a post-imperial Russia, a Russia that's a, an actual nation state and doesn't define itself in terms of controlling um, other groups either within its borders or um, beyond them is an admirable long-term goal. It's very hard to see how we get there at the moment, barring a catastrophic military defeat. And, and of course, the problem with that is that um, if Putin winning is very scary, Putin losing is pretty scary as well, because um, you mentioned in that um, foreign policy article I referred to at the beginning, his favorite story about the cornered rat. And if you did have a 1918-style military disintegration where an overstretched, under-resourced military starts shooting its officers, going home, mutinying, um, and you see a bit of a military collapse going on, even in parts of, perhaps not all the front, but on, in, in bits of it, that would be a ch an existential threat to Putin where he might then try and, es try and escalate. And I'm wondering how you, and, and, and this is in a way one of the great bogeymen if, um, in, in, in the Western discourse is, oh my goodness, Putin's so crazy, we don't know what he'd do, so we better better not, not quote, humiliate, unquote, and we, we can't afford to have Putin losing. So how should we think about this danger of, of escalation? Is it is it as real as some of the fear mongers and doom mongers make out? Well, first of all, he's not crazy. Um, look, we've had Putin around now for 22 years. Um, I think many people who are listening to this too have, you know, kind of made some assessments of him in all this time. We actually know a lot more about him than we used to. And you have to remember that, you know, as you said here, a lot of these stories that we hear about Putin are stories that he himself has put forward because he wants to create a certain image. The story of the rat is his own story that he tells, you know, a journalist for his semi-autobiographical book that is his campaign book for being 
uh, cemented in the position of president back in 1999-2000. And a lot of the stories about Putin's risk-taking and the kind of assessments of him come from that, from this kind of creating a certain image that he has to live up to. Now, you know, he's also a rational actor in his own rationale, in his own context. You know, people remember that, you know, um, Angela Merkel said that he's a man who lived in his own world, which doesn't mean that, you know, he lives in an alternate universe. He lives in a, a carefully framed and calculated uh, context of his own, with uh, his own sets of assessments here. Just like, a, you know, I said before, he actually probably assesses he's not doing that badly in the war, uh, where we would look at it from our own perspective and think, well, that's nuts. <laughs> you know, he, he hasn't achieved any of his original goals. But Putin always, again, is the operative, somebody who... Uh, was a contingency planner thinks okay well I have my I have my goals I have my strategic perspectives here and if the first thing doesn't work then I'll just try another thing and then I'll try another thing it's adaptation he always tells these stories about adaptation as well like water if it can't get down one channel it'll find another and so he's always you know finding another way uh, to get to the uh, get to the same point now if that way then as you're suggesting things start to look a little dire you know we've already seen them do the nuclear saber rattling. I mean, in many respects, he's already rhetorically deployed nuclear weapons and used them because he's got everybody scared and running around. So we have to you know, bear in mind that that's the kind of thing he does. So how do we get ahead of it? Um, one of the um, things that uh, is worth bearing in mind, for example, is that they take a very careful read of us and about how we react. So we think about when they move through the Chernobyl exclusion zone, the, the, the military forces, Putin was paying attention to the fact that everybody said, oh, they wouldn't possibly go through Chernobyl. Why would they do that? I mean, that, that's just horrific. I mean, why would they think about doing that? So, of course, they go all the way through. And this scare the heck out of, of everyone by not just stirring up the dust, the toxic dust that's going to actually, you know, probably create a whole host of cancer cases and all of the young conscripts that were sent through that. But it's it's basically stirs up the dust of time. People like me and you and others, you know, who remember the Chernobyl um, explosion and the fact that we were all irradiated in Europe with the plume going over. And so everybody's fears about nuclear power and how that can go wrong get stirred up again. Same thing with Zaporizhia, the largest nuclear plant in Europe. They deliberately shelled it, deliberately shelled it. That wasn't an accident. And th the timing was, of course, so opposite because this was in the uh, period when the Germans are debating whether they extend the life of their nuclear plants you know, to try to offset these problems that they're going to face with natural gas coming in uh, from uh, Russia. And similarly, the Japanese are trying to figure out whether they kind of rev up again their nuclear power system, notwithstanding all the fears from Fukushima. And of course, Germany and Japan are tied together uh, in this kind of nuclear reaction after that uh, explosion and accident after the tsunami in Japan with Fukushima. And so all of this is happening at the same time because Putin knows he can push our buttons. He knows our fears and he can play to our fears. So we then have to get ahead of this. We have to have a serious open discussion about it and we have to figure out how we're going to tackle it in uh, before anything happens. And so I think that that's the only way to deal with it, is to talk about it, talk about it calmly, uh, lay it all out, and to realise that this guy is pushing our buttons. Because in a psychological operation, the things that Putin was trained to participate in, you defeat the enemy before you even get to the battlefield. Now, in this case, he hasn't quite yeah. managed that. But the whole idea is that you tell everybody you can't possibly win, give up now. And that's just basically what he's trying to tell us. Yeah. 
I want to come to questions in a moment. There are many excellent questions and also a daunting list of Russia experts who've tuned into our discussion, um, many of whom would be um, we could um, profitably listen, listen to for many minutes or, or indeed hours. But I, 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 one of the things, I, I was, my final question before we get on to, on, on to the wider discussion, is that I, I find so frustrating that we are always doing things too late. And I'm wondering if you could just we could just spool back to February the 24th, or indeed February the 23rd. We put tens of billions of dollars of support, financial support, into Ukraine. Probably not enough because Ukraine's in a parlous state. We put enormous efforts into military supplies. We put sweeping sanctions on Russia. Um, none of it's really worked. We've averted disaster. We haven't got victory. It's really quite galling to think if, if one-tenth of that political energy had been devoted to the problem beforehand, um, presumably it would have deterred Putin and this wouldn't have happened. Well, yes. I, I mean, I think that's a fair point because, I mean, we, we know um, from long experience and everybody likes to quote the idea of the axiom of Lenin, you know, you kind of push and if you kind of, you know, essentially get mush, you keep on going. And if you hit something hard, you know, with a bayonet, then you stop. If you hit steel, you pull back. Um, I haven't put that as quite as artfully as it's normally quoted, but I mean, it's, bo it's bone. I think if you if you burn it, his bone stops. I, 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 we, 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 it's we, a nasty we, image, anyway. But I mean, basically, yeah. we know that you know, kind of, they will keep on Putin and the people around him. Again, as an operative, will keep on trying, and you know, if you kind of succeed, you keep on going, and then when you stop, you um, you um, fall back. But you know, the, the thing is that they, um, Putin and the Kremlin, have an incredible advantage over all of us. Because he's been in power again for 22 years, essentially with the same cast of characters around him, just moving seats. He doesn't have a free media anymore. He doesn't really have any kind of opposition. And there's no compulsion, you know, every time he has a new administration, so to speak, or a new term in office to shuffle people around. Think about how many US presidents, prime ministers of, you know, Italy, for example, you know, other places that uh, Putin has gone through in all of this time. We are democracies, we're very messy, we're not very stable. You know, we have uh, changes of administration in places like the United States. We then, you know, kind of have to go cycle through all kinds of political appointees. Many people are not um, actually in place. We have ambassadors who are not in place. Uh, if you think back to the Trump administration, multiple national security advisors and, you know, secretaries of state and secretaries of defence, we haven't got any continuity we drop the ball, we lose sight of the ball all the time. That um, is actually the main obstacle for us to be able to put in um, some consistent process that means that Putin always hits bone or steel all the way along. And of course, we now know that he's trying to game all of this out. He said it openly that he actually believes that new elites will come into power. We've had Mario Draghi's government fall in Italy. We've had, of course, Marine Le Pen um, emerge more successfully out of the French elections. Yeah. We're having uh, prime ministerial you know, changeover and potentially you know, kind of more upheaval in the United Kingdom. We have the midterms in the United States. Putin basically figures out that, yes, I mean, the reason that democracies lose focus is because they're always kind of changing over all the time. And we don't have yeah. systems put in place to basically deal with this in a consistent fashion. Right. And that actually takes us straight on to the first question, which is from Ewan Grant, who um, used to be a senior intelligence officer for customs and excise dealing with um, Eastern Europe and has forgotten more about um, the overlap between Russian intelligence and organized crime than uh, we will ever know. Um, but he, his, his question, which is very good, one, is just uh, who are you most worried about? If we look at the um, sort of international spectrum with both the 
failure to be consistent over time and the failure to maintain geographical unity. Um, just give in a brief give give us a sort of list of the top three thing top three things you're worried about. No, was it who or what am I most worried about? Uh, which countries? Which countries in the West? Where, where are the weak? The weak? Where are the where are the weak spots? Well, I mean, there are weak spots on every front. Honestly, I mean, here in the United States, um, I. Italy, obviously, with uh, the Salvini and others, you know, coming back into the fore again, and uh, the Draghi government having um, fallen. France, um, not um, because I think that Macron um, is under you know, uh, particular duress at the moment, but I mean he obviously also wants to have a different approach. Uh, to dealing uh, with Russia. And of course, there is that big influence now of Marine Le Pen and also, you know, on the far left uh, within um, France as well. Germany is going to be in uh, really big trouble uh, when we look, I mean, the Germans, um, Harbeck, you know, for example, uh, economics, they're quite open about this now. The um, Now the fact that the energy rug has been pulled out and beneath Germany, uh, puts into mm-hmm. question uh, the whole future of German industry, which was yeah. predicated on access to cheap natural gas. That was the Schroeder miracle. The turnaround of the economy was because of this pact with the devil, with Gazprom and uh, with other uh, Russian energy entities, which is one of the and reasons would- why Germany resisted doing th- something for so long. And look, in the UK, um, we've, you know, we've had the promises that um, as the prime minister changes over, um, there will be, you know, continued support for Ukraine, which I think is the case. But you know, it's also a bandwidth issue, right? The more domestic problems you have, the more that um, it, it becomes difficult to keep your focus yeah. on the foreign policy front. And obviously, you know, the United States has that in spades right now. So I'm kind of worried on every front. I do think there are countries out there that have not lost their focus that can keep the focus, but they need to have, you know, the backing uh, of others as well. I mean, I'd be betting on the Scandinavians, the Finns, the Swedes, the Danes, the Dutch, along with the you know the Norwegians. And the Estonians, Esto- let's not forget the Estonians, Latvians, and Lithuanians. I was going to say, just, that's what yeah, I was yeah. getting to, and also the Irish. Yeah. You know, there are there are a whole yeah. bunch of countries out there that are thinking about this really seriously. I mean, the Poles yeah. are running around with some pretty serious um, public diplomacy at the moment. And yeah. so, I mean, they actually, maybe the some of the smaller European countries, coupled with the Canadians, Australians, Japanese and South Koreans, that may be the mainstay of this effort here. Well, I think um, I'm sorry for interrupting you. I was uh, I'm always keen to highlight the uh, um, absolutely astonishing um, efforts that the Baltic states have made, which are per capita um, in terms of their yeah, size. Yeah, so I mean, it's um, um, I was big, just big, at, big, at big the big Aspen Security Forum, you know, on a panel with Mick Maran, who is the um, as he described it, the head of a boutique intelligence um, uh, entity of, of Estonia, and he was the star of the show. I'm showing that yeah. you know if your boutique maybe and you know, it's just a handful of people, but your analysis can just blow people away because you've never lost your focus. There's nothing wrong with a boutique if it stocks the stuff you want to buy. Um, so I and I, I'm, I'm just going to jump down the order because you, you mentioned soft spots and there's a huge controversy going on here in Britain right now about our um, outgoing prime minister and former foreign secretary hanging out with um, his friend Yevgeny Lebedev and having an, uh, a private and un, 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 unannounced and unreported afterwards meeting with Alexander Lebedev, formerly of the um, first chief directorate of the um, KGB. And um, there's a question here from Mr. Anonymous Attendee, um, which is either a very witty name or what he has really registered, um, who says, what's your take on that? And also the um, what he says of 3 million of 
Russian donations to the Conservative Party. I think we have to say that those donations are actually from British citizens who are maybe of Russian origin and are completely legal. And we don't want Intelligence Square to be sued and know it wrongdoing is imputed. Um, but um, do you have a quick take on uh, R- Russia, Boris Johnson, and the woes of the British establishment? Well, look, I think that all of the reporting on this is just really reflective <coughs> of the kinds of um, vulnerabilities that um, we've known about for a very long time, not just in the UK, but all over the place. Look, we know that Marine Le Pen, you know, and um, uh, what used to be the Front National, which is now the National Rally, took money uh, from the Russians, you know, via um, an intermediary bank, you know, for example. You know, we've talked about, I just mentioned Salvini and um, the uh, Lega, and then there's the Five Star and other movements in Italy that we also know um, have uh, had some um, really um, close dealings with Russia. Salvini, you know, infamously wandering around with a T-shirt with Vladimir Putin uh, on his chest and many, many people visiting Moscow and, you know, availing themselves of RT. And uh, you, um, Ed, wrote about this in your book on the new Cold War. I mean, we've been documenting this for an extraordinarily long time on every front as it being a, a liability. So now what we're seeing is just the proof of this. And it's yeah. not just in the United Kingdom. It's not just individuals or, you know, kind of political parties. It's just across the board in the United States as well. I mean, this is pretty yeah. much every country with the exception perhaps of the Estonians and even then, you know, and the Finns and the, you know, and, and others, you know, they've they've also had a bit of a hard time keeping um, everything out, but they've yeah. been really yeah. scrupulous, you know, about trying to make sure that Russians were not in their systems, not in their economy, and that they couldn't be subject to blackmail. But we have to well, remember this is exactly yeah. Putin's business, is trying to find points of leverage, corrupt business yeah. people writ large, no matter where they are, or politicians who you know would like uh, to uh, have uh, some extra money. The Chinese do this now, you know, around uh, uh, Africa and you know elsewhere as well. I mean, this is something that we have to just recognise it's yeah. a liability. We need to roll it all back. And of course, the the most alarming thing is a country that never catches any spies. That doesn't mean things are perfect. That means things are terrible. So hats off to the countries that uh, are good at countering influence operations and make a big fuss about it. Um, So I think we're going to have to have very quick answers now because we've got lots of questions, only about 10 minutes. I'm going to ask you to give very um, quick fire answers. Um, Here's one just tidying up the sanctions from another anonymous attendee who says there's a growing body of opinion that sanctions against Putin are doing nothing to alter his policy and doing serious damage to the West. One might also add the critique that they have hardened Russian opinion against the West and done Putin a service in enabling his narrative of a besieged fortress. So um, if we were doing this again, would you have done sanctions any differently or is it just a matter of being um, patient and realistic and accepting they don't work very well or very quickly? Well, I think it's, um, you know, being realistic and accepting that they don't always work well and very quickly is a very important point. And, you know, when I myself was in government, we were always trying to argue about, can we do something different, not just sanctions all the time? It's just that this is an instrument that we have at our disposal. Um, It tends to play to our strengths. We have to remember we are engaging in financial warfare. And whenever you do engage in any kind of warfare, somebody gets hurt, often yourselves as well. There's always considerable blowback or collateral damage. The point, um, however, of um, sanctions, I mentioned before, you know, some concerns that some of these oligarch sanctions are not being particularly helpful. You know, we do, um, if they're kind of extended to all kinds of business people who actually are not at all related to the Kremlin, and then you actually push them, you know, further toward them as a result. Uh, we have to be, you know, very careful and very mindful about what some of the second and third order consequences of sanctions will be. There's also the disinformation element, for example. Putin has told the world that we, uh, the West, imposed sanctions on food and on fertiliser. We did not. 
But Putin was able to use the fact of sanctions on energy, of course, which did raise energy prices for fuel, you know, and has knock-on effects, uh, to then basically say that we're sanctioning everything. And, you know, the, the Russians tell neighbouring countries that get, you know, or could get implicated in secondary sanctions and the West is sanctioning them as well. So there's a disinformation element. And so some of the questions are getting pushed by disinformation, just to be very frank to mm-hmm. people, by the way, that you're, you might be feeding, you know, from uh, this information that's being pushed out there by uh, the Russian security services, just to be very clear, because we, we, we all end up accessing all kinds of information that unless you go back to the provenance and take a look at that, you can't be sure where that's coming from. But there is one element where I think we can be very clear that uh, Russia will start to get hurt. And that's on its ability to buy things. So, you know, high tech components. We're already seeing um, some problems to the Russian military for that because that's sanctions that were imposed on the military industrial complex of Russia going back to 2014 when they annexed uh, Crimea. And into the next year, there may be, you know, some pretty critical parts for machine tools and other, you know, high precision uh, technology where Russia won't be able to get the parts and some of its industrial plants may close down. Mm -hmm. It's another reason why Putin wants us to all give up and go away by winter. Uh, because it's in the next year yeah. that you'll start to see some impact. Now, does that change his mind on or his goals or his behaviour? I mean, I would say that's the wrong way of looking at it, but it might constrain his ability to keep pushing forward with the war. And that's what we're looking at. That was what George Kennan always talked about. It wasn't really containment, it was constraining. Constraining the ability of the Russian government to either blackmail us and leverage us, you know, kind of take advantage of our own corruption, or to be able to kind of pursue a war because it doesn't always have the high-tech equipment. It's one of the reasons, of course, that we're seeing them, you know, resort to the lack of, you know, uh, precision in terms of the artillery shells and, you know, pulling everything else that we've got out of there. So we do have to have a serious yeah. discussion about sanctions and a, and a very, you know, long, hard uh, analysis of what's working, what isn't working, and how we explain it to everybody as well about what we're doing. But we are engaged in financial warfare, so yeah, it's going to hurt. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you mentioned George Kennan, because um, although he was, um, I think, uh, acclaimed for his long telegram and strategy for dealing with the Soviet Union and letting its internal contradictions bring about its downfall, he was also a fervent opponent of NATO expansion. And we've got another question here. Um, what do you think of the argument that the West ex- westward expansion of NATO provoked Putin's invasion of Ukraine? It's from someone called Joe. And of course, this is echoed now by um, John Mearsheimer and, um, and, and others. And although I suspect, in fact, I know that you disagree with this contention as much as I do, um, if you could give a brief um, um, explanation of why this is not a response justified or otherwise to NATO expansion. I think that would be very useful. Well, um, two things. First of all, I mean, I have to say that I, I myself have undergone an evolution in thinking about all of this. So, um, you know, I was a student of Richard Pipes at um, Harvard in the 1990s, just like George Kennan. He was also, interestingly, opposed to NATO expansion because of, you know, the idea of it still being a Cold War uh, era uh, organisation and that um, if there wasn't some accommodation with Russia, it would just create a backlash as Russia pulled down the Warsaw Pact and withdrew from 
um, Eastern Europe. So Kennan and Pipes, both, you know, quite different in, in some of their approaches, but, you know, Pipes can hardly, you know, be thought of as any friend of the Soviet Union and certainly a very, you know, conservative, somewhat hawkish thinker. Remember, I mean, he was part of the whole Plan B under the Reagan period and, you know, helped to think about the idea of uh, the evil empire, you know, for example, when he was at the National Security Council. Both of them were uh, came to the same conclusion, like Jack Matlock and, you know, very many others, this was not a great idea for the expansion of NATO, purely from looking at the relationship with Russia. Now, who are the countries that first wanted to join NATO? Because, I mean, I think part of our problem is we talk about expansion and enlargement, as if there's some kind of entity that, you know, operates on its own. Of course, the Russians say, well, that's the United States, just extending out its um, influence because NATO was just a cover for American imperialism. But the countries that wanted to first join NATO, and this is where I started thinking about it differently, were, of course, all of the countries that had been invaded by the Soviet Red Army when they were supposedly part of the Warsaw Pact. And as many people have pointed out, the Warsaw Pact had a long history of invading itself. And those were, of course, Hungary and from 1956, uh, the Czech Republic, uh, having been invaded as Czechoslovakia in 1968, and then Poland, that wasn't exactly invaded, but you had General Jaruzelski declare martial law in part uh, to um, push back on uh, a Soviet invasion. And of course, Germany you know, had its own histories as well. But the three countries that are the first movers to join NATO are the three countries that probably had the worst possible experience under the Warsaw Pact. And it's their um, thinking about this that really you know, has kind of shaped it because they wanted to join Turkey wanted to join NATO also because it was fearful of Soviet invasion. So this is not the United States expanding this out. And NATO certainly didn't invade France when France pulled back uh, from its uh, NATO membership. So, you know, th there is a very different way of thinking uh, about NATO as I myself, you know, started to contemplate over time. Now, the second thing is thinking about why did Sweden and Finland want to join? I think it really clarifies the whole point here. As the Finns have said, you know, they could have joined NATO at any point over the last several decades. They chose to join after the invasion of Ukraine because they saw the writing on the wall about where Russia was headed. And they realised that every other piece of mechanism um, of European security had failed to prevent war and to kind of manage what they wanted to have a state of peace, including their own Helsinki Final Act, in which, you know, the Finns obviously took um, a leading role in the design and uh, creation of the Organisation for Security and Cooperation in Europe. That was all out the window. Sweden reversed 200 years of neutrality yeah. because it now sees a much more aggressive Russia and now buys what other countries like Poland and uh, then Hungary, probably not now Hungary, and the Czech Republic were kind of saying back in the earlier part of the 1990s. The other thing, and this is actually a third point rather than just a second point, and is very, that Putin himself, Putin himself has said that it's not just about NATO anymore because when they were at, he was asked about Sweden and Finland after fulminating against their, their yeah. entry for years, basically says, well, we don't have the same problems with Sweden and Finland as we do with Ukraine. He has made it crystal clear that this is really about Ukraine and Ukraine having the you know, temerity, basically wanting to uh, ally with organisations, countries and entities that are not Russia. He's made it crystal clear. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for that. And I'm, I'm afraid we're, we're almost out of time. There's a fascinating question here, which I think you'll, you'll ask you to have a one-sentence answer to. Why do you think Roman Abram Abramovich was present at the summit with Erdogan, the UN Secretary General and the Ukrainian-Russian representatives in Turkey, um, in the discussions about grain shipments out of Ukraine? What would a Russian oligarch be doing there? Well, I think that one he's sentence. been kind of designated in some respects, maybe self-designated as a possible intermediary for things 
brings them all broader. I mean, we already saw him with the other negotiations. Now, I'm sure that he has a vested interest in this. I mean, we all know that he wasn't too thrilled to give up Chelsea, who would be, uh, and has not been very happy in the way that he has also been ostracised. Remember, he's not one of the original Putin mm-hmm. oligarchs. He comes over from the Eltsin era. He has some independent standing of his own. And I think he's trying to position mm-hmm. himself as an intermediary, and the Kremlin's trying to figure out whether they can use him, so they don't want to jettison him yet. I would, however, be somewhat right. sceptical about, you know, kind of really uh, what he's up to and what the utility of this is. But I think we should just take note that he's been put out there um, as um, an intermediary and as somebody who could create some continuity at a point where the Kremlin might be more serious about Stupid. negotiations. Well, it's certainly given us a chance to have a good discussion, although the I think we should never forget this has come at the price of tens of thousands of dead, hundreds of thousands of shattered um, physical and mental injuries. And millions, and millions of, 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 of refugees that have been lives. displaced, yeah. Um, and, um, and, and however fascinating it is and however many um, positives we'll be able to find, this is against the background of the worst thing that's happened in, in Europe. Um, in our in our lifetimes, um, and on that um, mordant note, I'm going to give my thanks to you, Fiona, um, for your great insights, um, both in your books and your articles, and for sticking up for the free world in the Trump White House, which was naming achievement. And I want to thank the audience for tuning in, and most of all to our host, Intelligence Squared. If you'd like to support us in providing a home for passionate debate, deep discussion and answering the big questions that really matter, do consider becoming an Intelligence Squared Premium Podcast subscriber today. For just a small amount each month, you won't just be directly helping us continue to do what we do. You'll also be getting exclusive episodes each month, ad-free listening and early access to currently available via Apple Podcasts. You just need to hit the subscribe button. And if you're not an Apple user, don't worry, we're working on something for you too. Thanks for being a listener, supporting Intelligence Squared, and you're just one click away from getting some exclusive extras too.